Hello, you lover of art and design, and in today's episode, all things Inuit. Welcome to Prairie Design Lab, a new podcast coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. If you're tickled by architecture and the beauty that designers create, you're in the right place. Prairie Design Lab is a podcast that builds on all that has been accomplished by the first architecture faculty in Western Canada. It was founded 101 years ago. This podcast is created by the students, the faculty of the university, and by many people who care deeply about our built environment. I'm Terry McLeod, the host, producer, and writer of Prairie Design Lab. Today, we're going to travel from the prairies and beyond to Nunatsiavut, to Nunavut, to Nunavik, to Los Angeles and to Montreal, all through the lens of Winnipeg's soon to open brand new Inuit Art Center. Today's episode is especially thrilling to me because I get to return to one of my favorite parts of the world, brimming in art, natural beauty and fascinating people. I've traveled extensively in the Eastern Arctic and lived for a time in the early 80s in the tiny hamlet of Sadlui, Nunavik, at the top of the Ungava Peninsula on Hudson Strait in Arctic Quebec. That's where I first discovered Inuit art and artists, including a 10-year-old boy named Molly. As you probably know, the Winnipeg Art Gallery is just putting the finishing touches on its magnificent brand new Inuit Art Centre. The WAG convened a Zoom conference call one evening recently to share the remarkable story of the Inuit Arts Centre. I was lucky enough to get to host it. Good evening and welcome to a very special evening with a conversation about the almost complete Inuit Art Center being built in downtown Winnipeg, adjacent to the Winnipeg Art Gallery. And we are so thrilled to have two of the most expert people in the world to talk about the Inuit Art Center from two very different perspectives. We have Michael Maltzen with us. Michael is the architect of the Inuit Art Center. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I won't try to go through your resume because it is very long and very complex. <clears throat> And I'm going to introduce Heather as well, Dr. Heather Igluliorti, who is the curator of the first exhibition that will be at the Inuit Art Center. Hello, Heather. Good evening. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I want those watching to get a better sense of your capacities involved with the Inuit Art Center. A brief description of your background in Inuit art would really help us get a better sense of, of the depth of your opinion. Sure, thank you. Okay, so I'm uh, Dr. Heather Glulipti. I'm an Inuk from Nunatsiavut. Uh, my father's an Inuk and my mom's a Newfoundlander. And I have been working in Inuit and other Indigenous arts for the last 15 years. I'm currently the only um, Inuk in the country to hold a PhD in Inuit art history, although of course there's been many other Inuit curators and art historians. But the Winnipeg Art Gallery is home to the first ever full-time Inuit curator, or the, the first in the WAG's history, and maybe the first in the country's history. And uh, I have been so excited to see that develop. I've been working in museums and galleries. I, I just last night I was looking at my CV and I said, oh my God, I've worked on almost 30 exhibitions in the last 15 years. And I uh, currently have two shows touring nationally and internationally, and I'm the lead guest curator 
for the new uh, exhibition Inua, which is going to be the first to open at the Inuit Art Center. But I'm not the only curator. I'm working with uh, three other really amazing emerging curators as well. Okay, Heather, thank you for that. And, and Michael, if you could give us a capsule description mm -hmm. of you and your practice. Michael Maltzen, architecture, started, what, in 95? Is that correct? 1995 in Los Angeles, and uh, the practice is centered um, in LA, but we work internationally. Europe, uh, China have been very fortunate to be working in Winnipeg on uh, the Newman Art Center. Our work is, is varied in terms of the different types of programs that we take on in the buildings we're involved with. We, though, do quite a bit of cultural work and um, institutional work with a real concentration around uh, museums, galleries, and exhibitions. I'm very dedicated, focused on that kind of work because in those spaces, you get to work with collections and exhibitions that express something important, meaningful to culture. And, and that's exactly what you hope architecture does as well. And with us this evening as well, of course, is Stephen Boris without whom this entire project would not be happening. Hello, Stephen Boris. Good evening, Terry. In Winnipeg, you're a cultural hero, and across the country, <laughs> people know you. But t tell us a bit more about who you are and what your involvement is with the WAG and the Inuit Arts Centre. I've been the director and CEO of the WAG for the last 12 years. You know, I grew up in Winnipeg, but I returned 12 years ago to work on this project, which has taken longer than I anticipated, but it was worth every day I've been involved. It's been my dream to see this happen, but really I see myself simply as a facilitator, bringing together the right people, the right voices to make this happen. And, and more than a building, although it's an extraordinary building, it is really a conversation, a response, an act of reconciliation as we respond to specific calls across the country. So to be involved in this project right now in Winnipeg, in Canada, is extraordinarily exciting huge responsibility and honor to be setting new examples for how museums can work with Indigenous communities and how we can contribute more to the larger dialogue. What makes Winnipeg the right place to be the home of the Inuit Art Centre? Winnipeg's in the north, although it's the south to the Inuit. It has this extraordinary population treaty run, uh, Métis homeland. So you have this mixing of First Nations, Métis, Inuit people, non-Indigenous. But of course, the WAG has a 60-year-old history with collecting, documenting, exhibiting Inuit art. It was across the street from the Hudson Bay Company, and so it had a tie to the north. And we have been collecting Inuit art since the 1950s. We've exhibited, published more than any museum in the world. And while I wouldn't consider us the authority, I feel we have pushed forward the agenda of Inuit art and not only is our collection the largest of its kind, I believe there's a moment right now in Winnipeg, in Canada, that the WAG can play a leadership role with this project. Heather Igliorti, uh, I was lucky enough to live in the Arctic for a while and saw firsthand the creation of art by very young mm -hmm. Inuit people that I made friends with. A 10-year-old used to come to our, came to our house once with a chunk of soapstone and said, I need to buy a new hockey stick will you lend me five dollars and i will leave the soapstone with you and then i'll come back and carve it if i can go get the hockey stick which he did and he carved uh this piece by the way which i still have and treasure but what is the aesthetic 
of Inuit art, how would you describe the art that is created by Inuit people? Well, first, let me say, that's a really impressive piece to be made by a 10-year-old. I think you got the better end of that bargain, but of course, he got the hockey stick. So that's yeah. um, I think that Inuit art is anything made by Inuit. And maybe a lot of people who are um, watching the call right now or might watch this later would, you know, something comes to mind for them right away when they think about Inuit art. And that could be Arctic animals like owls, polar bears, and all these really beautiful things created in uh, print and sculptural means and so on. And then, you know, there's a lot of Inuit music. I think people think about that when they think about Inuit art as well. But uh, we're really excited about this this first exhibition and everything that's coming up because for us, uh, the Inuit aesthetic is anything made by Inuit. And so in the inaugural exhibition, we have installation and photography and video and uh, sculptures and prints and paintings and all kinds of things that we're hoping are going to really show Inuit art to back to Inuit and then to broad audiences. Michael Malson, what was it about this project that made you want to be part of it? This project had what I thought was a, a really fundamental, essential question that Stephen and his team asked from the very beginning. And that was, how do you make a building for Inuit art at this moment in our culture? What does that mean? What does that look like? How does it operate? How does it help create and foster a conversation? Those are all things that are extraordinarily exciting to think about as an architect. Architecture is fundamentally, of course, about making a building that functions well for the people who are working there, in this case for the collection, for the visitors. But then architecture has the ability to represent, communicate, say something beyond that about values, about ambitions, about aspirations, about culture. It does that in a number of ways, but a lot of it is by the way it tries to help foster connections between people, between spaces, in this case, between the uh, new Inuit Arts Center building and the Gusta Rosa Winnipeg Art Gallery that exists on the site. Those challenges, those are motivating challenges for an architect. That's an exciting thing to think about taking on. Daunting a bit, but very exciting. Stephen Boris, what challenges did you face when deciding 12 years ago that this was a project that you were going to bring to life? You know, I think the biggest challenge was rethinking the narrative of how Inuit art has been presented, particularly in Canada for the last 60 years, which has largely been done by non-Indigenous voices. And um, this was a chance for us to rethink the whole pedagogical structure of how um, this art, this culture has been presented and documented and shared, and how, in fact, even Winnipeggers have seen Inuit art. And, you know, there are, for me, there are two types of architects. There are architects who go to museums and those that don't. And so with Michael, he understood the vocabulary, the curatorial agenda, museum methodology, looking at and rethinking the role of the object and Inuit art simply as contemporary art. So we quickly were able to advance that discourse and get to a place. And I, and I believe Michael won the competition because he asked us the questions we didn't know the answers for. Those continue to drive us in this goal. But Stephen Boris, raising the money for a project as large and as important as this, what did that take? It would have been a lot harder if we were simply raising money to build a new space, um, to exhibit, to store. But this project, um, the value proposition 
was about a new conversation, a, a different forum in which to present and to shift the narrative so that the first voice the audience sees and hears is the Inuit voice. That helped greatly. I would say the TRC's calls to action for museums. The Truth um, and Reconciliation Commission. Pushed us to respond to how we work, how we function as a museum, as a cultural body. Those things helped greatly in raising the money because we were raising awareness of something that was critical in our country. Michael Maltzen, you're in demand all over the world as an architect. Why did you choose this project here in Winnipeg? Thank you for saying, why did I choose it? I, I feel very fortunate <laughs> that this project chose us uh, because it was a, certainly, there were many architects who were interested and motivated uh, to try to work with the art gallery on this project. This project had aspects of it that I thought were exciting to try to imagine how to, how to make architectural form. How do you create a space, for instance, for Inuit art that is changing, that is evolving? Most people, at least when we first started working with this project, knew primarily the sculptures and the carvings that the Inuit have made. And many times those are, are smaller carvings and that you can hold them in your hand, like your, uh, your, the carving you showed us. But Inuit art is being affected by culture all around it, uh, changes in society. And there are now different uh, media that the artists are working in. The scale is changing. I think Heather talked about that when she uh, was talking about the first show that will open the center and how varied uh, Inuit art is now. That's a challenge for the architecture to try to be able to show that widest range of that art uh, in the best possible way and to try to make a building that anticipates or at least tries to anticipate how that art is going to continue to evolve. Since Michael Maltzen works out of Los Angeles, I was especially curious about what he did to capture the light, the color, the environment, and the feel of Inuit life in the Arctic. As it turns out, Michael spent some time in a hamlet that I knew, Pengnertung on Baffin Island. We were involved already in working on the design of, of the building, and Stephen knows this very well. And developing different approaches and uh, different iterations to the form of the building, the spaces of the building. But I kept feeling like something was, was missing. I kept feeling like we weren't quite hitting it. We were doing a good job, I thought, relating to the city around the new Inuit Art Center and how we were creating some relationships with the existing WAG. But there was something more fundamental that I felt like we were missing. And, and that was around the time that Stephen and um, Darlene White uh, organized a trip for us to go to the north. That was 2013. My family came with me. We had a bit of an expedition there and stayed for a little over a week. And it was during that time that it really started to click for me. It, it, it had to do with the scale of the place and the qualities of that scale. Uh, I was really taken by the enormity of the scale of the landscape 
and yet the focus of the artists making something that in many cases was quite small, but incredibly powerful. And that led to significant changes in the design, the idea of creating this much larger gallery that could start to infer, insinuate that scale, but then creating a series of other spaces throughout the new center that would allow a greater amount of intimacy to take place. That was the key. That was, that was the thing that, that turned it for me. When I lived in the Arctic, we had a, a very intimate relationship with snow and ice and wind that was really stunning. We lived on a fjord up on Hudson Strait. The first day we moved to the settlement, the water truck broke down, and so we had to melt snow uh, to get water because there was no water delivery going on. But snow and cold and wind are such a feature of Inuit life in the Arctic. How did you work that into the building? I don't think you can ever fully capture how magnificent, awe-inspiring, um, phenomenal that landscape and place are. But I did think that we could begin to give the building some of the uh, life that you see in that landscape, especially around the way that the light changes all of the time. In the exterior form of the building, we've created a series of scallops uh, to the exterior form, a series of concave and convex scallops that uh, will capture the amazing Winnipeg light over the course of the day. The stone that we've chosen was chosen because it reacts to the light throughout the course of the day in very beautiful ways. And, and I think in that way, the facade of the building starts to have an aliveness that you start to see in the landscape of the north. And then on the inside, especially in the main gallery, it's not a rectilinear box, which um, is a different type of challenge for people who will be working there and curators. It's not a traditional space, but a more flowing space, a more, maybe a more organic space. There aren't hard corners. All toplit with skylights, so that the inside of the gallery will feel suffused with the light from the sky. And that was also something that I felt like was a quality of the North that we could try to connect to. Yes, the, the light when I lived there was very unusual in that the sun would come up in our settlement at about 10 o'clock in the morning and it would set at three. And so it was quite fantastic to be exposed to that kind of light. And then there was a radiance the rest of the time. Heather, how does the uh, environment and the light affect the kind of work that Inuit artists are producing? Well, let me first just say, Terry, it sounds like you were in the north, you were in Nunavik, wintertime only. In the summertime, we could have 24 hours of sun, so the light changes quite dramatically, which is probably not that different from Winnipeg, honestly. Like we're maybe not quite on the same level, but uh, where I grew up in, in Happy Valley Goose Bay, we, the winter times were like that, like the sun comes up after you're already at work or at school and it sets before you get home at the end of the day. But the trade-off is in the summertime, you know, you've got the sun setting at midnight and rising again at three o'clock in the morning. So you have these, you know, kids are out all night and you have this amazing engagement with the environment. And I agree with what Michael said, the, the light in the building is what's really stunning. Because when you are inside, when, when everyone is finally able to get inside, you will 
see that it's not cold. It's actually, it's this huge, the gallery space especially is this massive space, you know, like no straight lines, no straight walls, like they were saying, but it's, it's not cold. It's actually stunningly beautiful, but in a warm kind of way. And I think that probably has a lot to do with the, the great big skylights coming in. So you were asking about materials in the Arctic and, and you know, a lot of artists um, today, no matter whether they, you know, I, I wouldn't say that there are artists who are contemporary artists that are traditional, but there are some people who are still working in uh, very long traditions and other people who are doing um, things with new media and other, other media. Um, and I would say that a lot of artists are still very invested in working with materials from our land. And so uh, sealskin and uh, caribou hide, bone, whale bone, all of those things are still really prevalent in there. And you'll see it all through the building when it opens. You'll, you'll see all those kinds of things. Even artists who are using, um, for example, drone photography. Yeah, there we go. You have some yeah, whale bones. So a lot of whale bone. I, I, I was given this in, in Pengerturk. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's part of a bowhead whale spine that's been carved into a fantastic bird. How many more of those do you have? I'm like, what do I have that I can pull out of? <laughs> well, <laughs> I've got earrings on my desk, unfortunately. These are muskox horn. <laughs> that's all I have. Right. And, well, if you want any of mine for your gallery, please, you know, for the IAC, you can have them. I think that that's the exciting thing is that we'll see all kinds of different uh, material and media, but that... Um, sort of Inuit materials, we were talking about aesthetics earlier, those are sort of woven through uh, all of the practices. So even when you see, for example, drone photography is really, really big in the Arctic right now. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, and it's some of the most spectacular things, um, but you're still seeing that it is drone photography of the land because now we get all these new perspective on things that we have uh, always loved and, and it's just a way to share it with the world. Climate change is a big concern in much of the world, but in the Arctic, it's much more evident. In, in what way is that changing the lives of the Inuit people that you know? Uh, I think that it's, it can be very scary times for sure. We're seeing the melting permafrost and with that also comes the threat of resource extraction and more and more um, incursions into the north, which can bring pollutants and other things that people are worried about. One of the things that in, in my community, and I know lots of other places is also a concern, is that it, the weather's just not predictable like it used to be. So, um, you know, when, when there was like a certain, you know, down to the, you know, maybe it's the last week of May when, when the ice would start to uh, melt, for example, and then you'd kind of be able to pinpoint when it was going to be not safe and when you had to wait until you could get out in your boat again. And uh, that has become less and less predictable. So sometimes it, the ice melts very quickly and other times it uh, melts very late. And because we use ice like, um, like a highway, you know, like you take your skidoos out on it in the wintertime and go hunting over the ice, um, because that's unpredictable, it can, it can lead to, you know, of course, snowmobiles are quite heavy as well. So people going through the ice and that kind of thing. It's also, of course, uh, and perhaps other architects will have questions around this that I can't answer, but it also has an impact on the quality of housing in the north. And because of the sort of melting and freezing temperatures and the more humidity in the air and all these kinds of factors are having an impact on housing. And then the, the final thing is another architecture <laughs> kind of a thing, which is that um, houses have been built on permafrost and the permafrost is starting to melt. And that's very, very scary because um, that means that the, even the land underneath, which has been frozen you know, for a millennia, are starting to kind of give way. And that's caused a few landslides in a few places. So I'm certainly not a, like a climate change <clears throat> expert, but just knowing anecdotally about what's happening in my friends' communities and in my family's communities, th those are all kinds of factors that are happening right now. The, the most urgent one is um, how scary it can be 
to, to navigate on the ice. And there's actually um, a number of social media and technology uh, efforts underway to um, try and track and, and just sort of get the word out to community members when things are safe and unsafe. So uh, Michael Molson, Heather talked there about uh, housing, and I know that you are driven particularly in Los Angeles to work <coughs> with, with homeless people to provide better housing. And homelessness is a big issue all across Canada, in the South and in the North. What thoughts do you have from your perspective in designing housing for people who are homeless when finding yourself in Canada, particularly in the North, where a shortage of housing or inadequate housing is, is a central issue. That's an enormous question because inaccessibility to affordable housing is, has really become a global phenomenon. We're working on it specifically really in, in Los Angeles, where that's, that's really where the majority of our work around this has been. And in that situation, what we have found working with the nonprofits that we're involved with is that building housing in and of itself, it's a good thing, but it's not enough. The real key over the last 15 years here in the successful projects have been bolstering uh, those communities that can grow up around these new buildings uh, with supportive services, uh, giving the, the, the residents a connection to healthcare, the psychological care, to vocational training, really a, a full range of support to allow them to re-navigate their lives, but more than anything, to help stabilize and grow community. Very often here, the challenge has been that homeless individuals have been on the streets for many, many years and have lost their capability to connect to any kind of community. That disconnect is what often uh, stands between somebody getting um, a foundation underneath them and on their way and, and not. So I don't feel comfortable necessarily talking about um, the challenges specifically in the North, but there's certain universal aspects to housing. And a lot of it is, I believe, very human. How do you create places that are good places for people to live, but more than anything, help them create and sustain community. Stephen, the WAG is in the heart of downtown Winnipeg, as now is the Inuit Arts Centre. I used to work just down the street at, at the CBC. You must know, I certainly saw, there were lots of people who were apparently homeless on the street. In what way will the Inuit Arts Centre change the relationship with Indigenous people, Inuit people, in downtown Winnipeg, will it have a, a role aside from just showing beautiful and provocative artworks? Completely. Even in my first conversations with Michael about not just the WAG site, but the grid, the context around us, who was living there, the pathways of First Nations people that go right by the WAG, um, all those things entered into, I would say, what makes the model for the new museum. Clearly, the role of art and the documentation, the collecting, the exhibiting of art is important. But if you think of the real estate that art museums and galleries hold in cities and downtowns across the country, the opportunity we have to not lower the threshold, but to expand the invitation 
so that the spaces we offer are there for everyone to look to rethink of um, what stops people from walking through our doors, from lingering, from hanging out. The fact is, you know, 75% of millennials go to museums to chill out. We have to rethink why we're there. And it is the dialogue that I've had largely with the Indigenous Advisory Circle at the WAG to understand how we can respond, be more meaningful, be more useful. It involves the type of programs we do. It involves the price of admission. It involves physical access, visual access. It involves who is working inside and if the people outside see themselves in what we do inside. All those things are happening. We have a long way to go. But I would say the more we listen, to what people want and need and expect from a museum, the better chance we, we have of being relevant in the next 50 years. I have to say, I, I got a chill as you were talking about that perspective as a citizen of Winnipeg. I'm thrilled to hear you describe how the WAG and the Inuit Art Centre is going to be thinking about the larger community and playing a role in enhancing the quality of life for all Winnipeggers. The Inuit Art Center is having an impact beyond what many consider to be the capacity of an art gallery. But then again, as we heard today, the IAC is no ordinary art gallery. It's a place with a shared vision of transformation. Tell your friends about us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, to name two, and on Twitter at Prairie Design Lab. And search for us on Facebook as we share stories of brilliant prairie architecture and design. For Prairie Design Lab, I'm your host, producer, and writer, Terry McLeod. Mm -hmm.